the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Hey, we're kicking off a new series today. We're going to be going through the book of 1 Peter for about the next eight or nine weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, go over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Awesome. 1 Peter 1. We're calling this series Aliens. You'll see in a minute why we're calling it that. 1 Peter chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles... Other translations, New American Standard. So some translations use the word exiles. Some translations say strangers. The New American Standard Version says aliens. The God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so just a couple of, whenever you're reading the book of the Bible, whenever you're studying the book of the Bible, some good questions to ask at the beginning. So the first question is, who wrote this book? Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. In this book, Peter tells us, it's me, it's Peter. Like the book of Hebrews, it's not quite as clear. And so Peter, who was one of the apostles, oftentimes the most outspoken of the apostles and the lists of the apostles, normally Peter's listed first. He's kind of seen as the most prominent of the 12, as you see in the early church. And so you say, who wrote it? And then a great question to ask is, about what time did they read it? When, when in history was it written? And most scholars believe this was written somewhere around AD 63, maybe early AD 64. It was a time where the persecution of Christians was growing, but the persecution under Nero that took it to a whole new level hadn't yet started. And so you ask, who wrote this? When did they write it? Where were they when they wrote it? And, and most scholars believe that Peter writes this from Rome. And then who is he writing it to? He tells us here. He says he's writing it to, to these Christians scattered around Turkey, modern day Turkey, a handful of these different cities. And, and, and so he uses this term. He says, Peter, an apostle of Christ, to those who reside as aliens or exiles or strangers. And, and so when, when Paul, you, Peter uses this language of aliens and exiles, what he's saying is, I'm writing to you who, who are, are living in these places, but that's not your real home. He's kind of this same language that we see Paul using about this idea that, that as followers of Jesus even though we are placed in a place, in a country, in a city, our true citizenship is in heaven, that we're citizens of another kingdom who are under the authority of another king, King Jesus. So when he calls them aliens, he said, hey, you guys, I know that you guys, that where you're at is not your real home. You're not really fitting in there. You are different. And then we keep reading here. He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Remember those two words, living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of 
trials. And so here's the purpose. So you say, when you're reading a book, you say, who wrote it? When did they write it? Where were they writing it from? Who were they writing it to? And what was the big purpose of the book? And so the big purpose of this book is Peter, knowing that these guys are already experiencing great difficulty for, and suffering because they're following Jesus. And, and in anticipation of this suffering and persecution getting greater, as, as Nero um, would, would, would take it to whole new levels, the city of Rome had this great fire. Nero blamed the Christians for the fire. And, and so they began, the persecution went to whole new levels where it wasn't um, out of the ordinary. It wasn't uncommon for Christians to be, uh, while alive, dipped in hot wax and then set on fire as sort of lamps around areas. And so they're just kind of being burned. And it wasn't uncommon for them to take Christians and to um, have a freshly killed animal skin that still had blood on it and cover the Christians in it and then let the lions out, out to come and eat the Christians. And so Paul is, is writing to these people that are already experiencing difficulty and more difficulties coming. And he's saying, hey, continue to stand firm and follow Jesus even when it's difficult to follow him. And so here's the thing. In America, we will likely never experience persecution where, where living for Jesus costs us our lives as many early Christians did, and as many Christians even around the world today, even as they gather in churches like this, there's Christians who are doing this at the risk of being beaten or even killed. The odds of that happening for us in America are super low, but, but following Jesus, it might cost you a promotion. It might cost you a job. It might cost you a relationship. But, but, but here's the thing. A, a big part of this book is this idea, this message that, that as followers of Jesus, a big part of this book is, is Peter saying, hey, even when it's hard to follow Jesus, we still have hope. And that applies both to when it's hard to follow Jesus because we're being persecuted for following Jesus, but it also just speaks about hard times where, where life is difficult simply because we live in a broken, fallen world. And so today I want to talk to you a little bit about how do we have hope in the midst of hard times. And chances are, over the last couple of years, you've not experienced this, this incredible persecution for following Jesus, but chances are, over the last couple of years, there's been seasons and moments and times that, that were among the most difficult that you have experienced. And what can happen to us in those moments is we can begin to lose hope. But the thing that gets us through the hardest times in life really is hope. But it's incredibly important that this hope is placed in the right things. And so we're going to talk today about how do we have hope um, in the hardest times. And, and so as followers of Jesus, we have hope in the hardest times. Here's the first reason. Because of what Jesus has already done for us. Look here, verse 1. He says, to God's elect, scattered throughout these different cities, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And so, so listen, what Peter's saying is this, is that because of what Jesus has already done, he's died in our place and he's risen from the dead. He sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And that Holy Spirit has, that literally the, the, the word holy simply means to be set apart. 
And he's saying that the Holy Spirit is changing you. This word sanctification or simply is a process where we're becoming more holy, more set apart. I like to think of it, it's just this process where we're becoming more like Jesus. And so in the hardest times in life, we have hope because he's God's, Jesus has died in our place, risen from the dead, sent his spirit to live inside of us, and his spirit is making us more like himself. And and he says he's given us his spirit so that we might be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. That little phrase there, sprinkled with his blood, sounds a little weird. What does that mean? And and what Peter's doing is is he's making a vague reference to this moment and and the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 23, where where Moses is, is receiving the Ten Commandments from God. There's this moment of like this sprinkling of this blood. Here's the idea. That in the, in, in, in the Old Testament and in, in the Bible, the, there's this idea of what's called covenant. And, and a covenant is like, a, it goes beyond promise. It goes beyond, it goes beyond contract. It, it's this whole other level of, of forever commitment. And, and, and that's that people would, people, we see covenants where people would make a covenant with one another. Marriage is a covenant. And, and then, but what we see here is in the Old Testament, as this law is coming, that, that it's the beginning of what we would call the Old Covenant or the, or the covenant of the law or the Old Testament. And, and, and so, but whenever there was a covenant, there was some sort of shedding of blood. And, and so, so kind of like when you were a kid, you're like, let's become blood brothers. And which is a terrible idea. It's a great way to get a disease. And so, uh, and so what Peter's doing is he's saying, hey, that, that just like there was this, this old covenant, he said there's this whole new thing that Jesus has brought. Where it's no, because in this moment, in this covenant where the, where the law comes, that there's this covenant where, where God says, this is the law. And then all those Old Testament people say, and we're going to obey all of it. And then they obeyed none of it. And breaking the covenant. And so that's why, so now there's this new covenant where it's not about me doing all the right things. It's about the fact that Jesus has done, that lived the perfect life I could never live. And he died the death I deserve to die. And so Peter in that one little phrase is saying all of these things where, where, he's, where everything's changed because of what Jesus has done. There's this new covenant sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth. So here, what Peter's doing is he's, he's taking us back to where Jesus has the conversation with Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. He's taking us back to the teachings of Paul, where he says, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's been born again. The old has passed away and all things have become new. And he says, so why do we have hope in the hardest times in life? It's, it begins because of what Jesus has already done. He, he's, he set us free from the law of sin and death. He's made us a whole new person. We've experienced this new birth unto this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If anyone on earth has ever understood how the resurrection gives us hope in the most difficult moments in life, it was Peter. See, before the resurrection, 
Peter's last, last moment with Jesus is where he's saying, hey, I never knew him. Three times he denies his very best friend three, to the point where he starts swearing about it, blaspheming against God. And he's now seeing his best friend who all of his hopes and dreams were placed in die. And, and so now he's lost all hope. Everything he thought life was about has now been shattered. He's turned on his best friend. He's blasphemed against God. The one he thought was gonna, was gonna save everything has now died himself. He's incredibly hopeless. And then what do we see later? Peter's preaching to thousands of people. Thousands of people are giving their lives to Christ. Peter preaches about Jesus until the moment where he dies himself, crucified upside down. What made the difference from hopeless Peter to then Peter who gives his whole life to this cause? It was the resurrection. And so Peter says, hey, we've got this hope in the most difficult moments because we've been born again into this living hope through the resurrection. And, and so what Peter's saying is he's saying, I know life's very, very difficult. And here's the bad news. It's going to get harder. But even in the midst of the hard times, we have hope because of what Jesus has already done for us. And then here's where he kind of transitions. We have hope because of what he has waiting for us. He says, you've been born again into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so what, what, what Peter's saying is, what is the living hope? This living hope, is, it's, it's based on what Jesus has already done, but it's also based on what he has waiting for us. He, he says it, it, it gets even better. And so as we think about this inheritance, he's talking about the, the things that God has waiting for us in eternity. A few things about it. First, the inheritance is incredible. Here's how Paul talks about it, 1 Corinthians 2.9. He says, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Have you ever had this moment? You're somewhere incredibly beautiful. Let's say you're in Maui. You're eating on the beach there. You're having this great meal. It's perfect weather. It's the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. Your spouse is being nice to you because you took him on vacation. <laughs> you say to your spouse, you say, this is heaven. And here's the thing. We've all had those thoughts. We've all had those moments. But, but the, the fact is, no matter how great that moment is, what, what Paul says is he says, what no eye has seen. He says that, that, that there's, there's no, nothing compares to anything you've ever experienced in this life, no matter how the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. He says what, what God has prepared for us goes way beyond that. He says what no eye has seen or no ear has heard. Maybe you know someone that's been somewhere better than Maui. Maybe you've gone, known someone that's been to Fiji, and maybe they said this to you. They said it's so beautiful. It's like heaven. In fact, compared, compared to Maui, it's like, it's like Maui's like Fernley compared, <laughs> compared to Fiji. So now it's like the best thing you've ever seen, the best thing you've ever heard about. You're saying, hey, Fiji's so beautiful, it's, it's, it's like Fernley. Ma Maui becomes like Fernley. Anyone live there? You do? It's all right. It's not, it's not a bad place, but it's not heaven. 
He says, the best place you've ever been, the best place you've ever heard about, the best place you've ever imagined, the most perfect thing you've ever experienced, heard about, or imagined. He says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God's prepared for those who love him. And so Peter says, hey, guess what? When life gets incredibly hard, either because you're following Jesus and you're being persecuted or just because we live in a broken, fallen world, he says, there's this thing that's coming for you. It's better than you could ever imagine. But here's the good thing about it. It's an eternal inheritance. He says it's an inheritance that can never perish. It's never gonna die. It can never spoil. Have you ever had that moment where you go to Costco and you're in the produce section and you see that little package of butternut squash and it's like, oh, that thing expires in 12 days. And then you go home and the next day you open it up and you're like, that thing is already spoiled. You ever had that moment? And you have a little Costco rage and you're like, all right, well, I know Costco will take back anything. But do I want to be that guy? Have you ever wrestled this out? Because it's spoiled on you. And what Peter says is, he says, this amazing and incredible inheritance that's coming your way, it's never going to die, and it's never going to spoil, and it's never going to fade. In the ancient world, cloth was incredibly expensive. They didn't have sweatshops in Asia that make all her stuff super cheap. We can laugh, I don't know. It's, uh, and so, uh, um, <laughs> didn't say it first service, probably wouldn't say it if we had a third service. And so, uh, I had this moment a couple of weeks ago. I had this shirt I bought at Dillard's like three years ago. It was like this, that Caribbean brand. I think retailed at like 150 bucks. I got it clearance for like 50 bucks. And it was a go-to shirt. I mean, it's a great middle-aged white guy shirt. You know what I'm saying? And, and then Claire, a couple of weeks ago, was like, honey, I hate to tell you, that thing's faded. You can't wear it anymore. And I was like, no, it hasn't. It's totally fine. Anyone ever have this moment? And then she pulls out a legitimately real black shirt, puts it next to it, and it's like, crap, that thing's faded. <laughs> so now I just wear it when Claire's not going to see me. And so uh, he said, Peter's saying this inheritance, it's better than you can imagine. It can never die. It's never going to spoil, and it'll never fade. It's an eternal inheritance, and it's a secure inheritance. Let me show you. He says, well, no, I, he, he says an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. He says it's, so when you see here, it already exists. It's, it gets, it's prepared for us already, and, and, and nothing can cause us to lose it. He says it's kept. The, the, the language is, is like the idea of something being securely stored. It's like you've got a precious thing that means a lot to you emotionally, or maybe it's incredibly valuable, and you've gone to the bank, and you put it in a safety deposit box, and you know the only way someone's getting in there, if there's a fire, it's not going to hurt it. The only can get in if the banker's got a key, and you've got a key. No one's getting it. It's incredibly secure. No one can cause you to lose it. And Peter said, hey, listen, you can have hope in the toughest times in life because of what Jesus Jesus has already done for you and what he's got waiting for you and what he's got waiting for you, you can never lose. It's never going to die. It's never going to spoil. It's never going to fade. It is secure. So here's the thing. If, if, the, if your source of your hope is something in this life, whether it's your finances, your job, or a person, your circumstances at all, your life's going to be a roller coaster. Or Tim Keller talk about this guy, Victor Frankl. He was a Jewish Austrian psychoanalyst that was imprisoned in Auschwitz. Frankl noted how different people responded to suffering in the death camps. And he wrote a book about it later called Man's Search for Meaning. 
He said that some of the prisoners responded to their hopeless situation by becoming brutal and cruel themselves. Others, Frankel said, just gave up. He said, usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to us experienced inmates. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoners simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds. No matter how many times they were threatened or beaten, they had just given up. Nothing seemed to matter. They'd lost all hope. He said, many, he said, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, family, professional achievements, fortune, and position in society would be restored to them. That was their hope. After the war ended and liberation came, he said many of them went home and found that those things were irretrievably gone, and they went into deep depression and even committed suicide. Their hopes had been shattered. Frankel said that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point beyond the world, holding on to something immortal and eternal that was out of the grasp of death and destruction. Frankel said, life in a concentration camp tears open a soul and exposes its depths and its foundation. If your hope is found in anything in this life, even a person, your life will be a roller coaster. Johnny Depp, years ago, wrote after the birth of his daughter, Lily Rose Melody. He said this in a newspaper interview. He said, my little girl is not just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. She's the only thing that's ever happened to me. I've been floating and haven't touched the ground ever since she was born. It's the only reason to live. It's the only reason to wake up in the morning. It's the only reason to draw breath. Listen, if this is a hyperbolic statement of a father talking about his love for his daughter, I get it. Many, many people have said many, many dumb things because they felt a whole lot of love. You complete me. You know, we've, we've all had those moments where people have said dumb stuff. But if someone really, if that was someone's actual truth, where they looked at their child and said, you're the only reason to live. You're the only reason to take a breath. Someone looked at their child or their spouse or any other person and said, and said without you, life's not worth living. My whole hope is in you. Here's the fact, his daughter. I understand looking at a cute little child and having so much love, you're un- impossible to express it in an intelligent way. But here's the fact. That girl's 21 years old now. I guarantee somewhere in the moment of her adolescence, he thought, this can't be the only thing life's about. If you find your hope in anything in this life, it will be a roller coaster. When your business is going great, you'll be up here. When it's struggling, you'll be down here. When your relationship with your spouse is going great, you'll be up here. When it's struggling, you'll be down here. If, if, when your bank account's full, you'll be up here. When it's less, you'll be down here. And so what Peter says is he says, listen, he says, you can have hope in the hardest times of life because of what Jesus has already done, but what he has waiting for you, it's beyond imagination and you can never, ever lose it. It's never gonna die. The people that we love the most, either you're gonna die and leave them or they're going to die and leave you. He says, but what, 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 what this eternal hope, it's never going to die and it's never going to spoil and it's never going to fade and it's never going to get rusty and it's never going to go out of style. It is, it is secure. It's, it's fixed for you in heaven. J.D. Greer said it this way, Christians hurt, but see their hurt can only go so deep. Because their ultimate hope is in a God who brings life back from the dead, turns tragedy into triumph, and takes us through the cross to bring us to the resurrection. 
We can have hope in the most difficult times in life because of what Jesus has already done, what he has waiting for us. Here's the third thing. Because of how he uses the hard times in us. He says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. That word genuineness, it was a Greek word that was used. He's using a couple of mixed metaphors here. That word genuineness was primarily used when, when someone was, a potter was making some pottery and, and then they would, when, when put under the fire to, to, to firm it up, to what we would use as a kiln today, when put under the fire, that many times it, it, that all the cracks would be exposed. Many times it would come out and it was, it was clear that this was, was not a keeper. And this idea is, is that when we go through the hard times in our life, it reveals the quality of our faith. He said, these have come so that the proven genuineness of our faith, the way we respond to difficulty, it's the way we respond to difficulty reveals the quality of our faith. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. The trials of life test our faith to prove its sincerity. I love this line. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A person who abandons their faith when the going gets tough is only approving they had no faith at all. He says, these have come to the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, when we go through tough times, it reveals the quality of our faith, but it also strengthens and purifies our faith. Now he uses the metaphor of, of someone that's taking some, a, a piece of raw gold that's not been purified and, and heats it up. When heating it up takes you to about nearly 2,000 degrees for, for, for the impurities to settle, for, to separate from that pure gold. Those impurities rise to the top so they can become off. So what you end up with is this purified gold. And, and here's what Peter's saying. He said, listen, the things you're going through, they're not good. The things you're going through, it wasn't like God brought them about, but he, by his grace and his kindness, can bring good even out of the worst things. And he's using these things to strengthen your faith. Here's what James says. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, the thing is, God, the, the, there's no waste in the pain. God doesn't cause the pain. God's not bringing those things into your life. But, but he, through the wonders of his sovereignty, grace, and kindness, can bring good even out of the bad. Just like Paul says, Romans 8, that God works all the things together for good. The things that aren't good, he, through, through the lens of eternity and through his wondrous grace, redeems even those worst things. He uses them in our life to, to grow our faith and bring about perseverance and maturity. Here's the third thing. The way that Jesus uses the hard times in our life, he uses these hard times to make his return sweeter. Through we're going through difficulty, right? we, we have this awareness that this is not heaven and this is not a perfect life and that one day Jesus is going to come back and wipe away every tear from every eye. And that's not real to us when there's not tears already in our eye, but in those moments where there's more tears than we can count and we say, one day he's going to come back and wipe away every tear from every eye and there'll be no more death. Well, that really doesn't matter when there's no death around us, but when we've lost a loved one and we know one day he's going to come back and take away every tear, there'll be no more death and there'll be no more sickness and crying and, and that we look forward to his return. 
That's why so many of the Negro spirituals during the slave days, those slaves enduring hardship that we could never even imagine would just so often just sing about heaven, sing about Jesus coming back. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. See, in those moments, in those hard times, God's using those things even just to make heaven a little sweeter. And, and he's using the, those things so that, that there's this thing I'm about to show you, that when we faithfully follow Jesus, even when it's worth it, we faithfully follow Jesus when it's difficult, that it ends up all being worth it. It actually it, it proves that our faith is real. And what Peter's about to show us blows my mind. Our faith is real. It's proven by the hard times. And that one day when we're, when we're with Jesus, it's going to blow our minds what's going to happen. Let me show this to you. He says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Look at this. You probably read this many times if you followed Jesus a while, but never really thought about it. I know I had before this week. Refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, usually when you're reading about praise and glory and honor in Jesus, usually it's about praise, glory, and honor going to Jesus. And as I was studying this this week, reading multiple, multiple scholars, multiple commentaries, every single one says this, and a, a basic reading of the original Greek makes it clear, this is not praise, glory, and honor, in this case, going to Jesus. This it blows your mind. This is praise, glory, and honor coming from Jesus to us as, we, as our faith is proven genuine, as we follow him even when it's hard. And, I, and when I first read that, I was like, I don't, that doesn't, that just feels too much. So I went and read somewhere else, went and read somewhere else, and it's like, that's just what it says. And, and, and then initially, it feels too good to be true, but here's why it's not. Because the very essence of the gospel is this, what some people have called the great exchange. And, and that, and that the, the whole idea is that Jesus being perfect and blameless and worthy of glory, honor, and praise. That, that, that Jesus comes to us who are broken and sinful and far from God, living in rebellion. That what Jesus come, does is Jesus comes and takes on himself in the gospel, on the cross. Jesus takes on himself everything bad about me, all of my sin, my brokenness, my shame, all, uh, the, the punishment I deserve for my sin. He takes everything bad about me and takes it on him and then gives me everything good about him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And, and so this thing, well, how do we have hope in the most difficult moments of life? It's because we know what Jesus has already done for us, that that's, we have hope there. We know what Jesus has waiting for us and we know that in every difficult thing, that, that, that God wants to use those things to make me more like Jesus, to make me better. Here's the last thing. Hard times show us the, true, the source of our truest joy. Look at verse eight. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of our, your faith, the salvation of your soul. See, in the hard times remind us that the real source of my joy isn't that boat. 
And the real source of my joy isn't even a person, although all these things are good gifts from God that he gives us to enjoy, but that the truest source of our joy is Jesus himself. He says, you're not seeing him, but you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him or filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So even the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Here's the truth. Jesus is the real source of our joy. Not anything, all the things in this life, many are good gifts from God to be enjoyed, but the truest source of our joy, the thing that can never be taken away from us is Jesus and what he's done in our life and what he has waiting for us and what he's doing in us can never be taken away. Here's the final question. We're done. Are you in one of those hard moments of life? Maybe in the last couple of weeks, you got news from the doctor that for yourself or a loved one that isn't what you were looking to hear. Maybe you've got relational challenges in a fr- in friendship or with your family that are greater than maybe you've ever faced before. Maybe, maybe you've got just the greatest challenge you've ever faced in your business, and it's, an, it's a difficult moment. And at moments, you, moment you find yourself losing hope. And you find yourself losing joy. I want to challenge you. In these moments as they come, remember that our hope is found in not in anything in this life. That'll just lead to a roller coaster. But our hope is found in what Jesus has already done. Dying in our place, rising from the dead, sending his spirit to live inside of us, to make us more like himself, giving us this new birth and to this living hope, what he's already done for us. And then the amazing things he has in store for us that are better than we can imagine can never be taken away. And that God is using every difficult thing in our life. If we'll let him, he'll use them to make us better. We pray for you. Father, we thank you that even though the good things in this life, the gift of beauty in the world, the gift of financial resources, the gift of health, the gift of friendships, the gift of love, the gift of family, God, we thank you for all of the good gifts that you've given us for our enjoyment. But God, we recognize that none of those things in this life are forever, and that our real hope is in you and what you've already done for us in the gospel, what you've already done for us, saving us, adopting us in your family, what you have in store for us forever that's better than we can imagine and can never be taken from us, and that our hope is that you're using even the difficult things, the hardest things, to make us who you created us to be. God, we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.